And if I must go and die at 27, then at least I know I died a legend. Machine Gun Kelly. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Felonious Pundits. I'm Kentad Svensgaard, and along with me, as always, C's, please say hello to my friend and yours, Mr. AJ Mass. AJ. Hello, hello, hello. Look at me. Look at you. Look at us. Back together again. It, it almost feels like it was destined to be. Ah, uh, yes. Destiny indeed. Folks, this is Felonious Pundits. We are a podcast about the television program Criminal Minds. Each week we recap and take an in-depth look at an episode of the show. I have never seen this show before, so I am uh, a newbie giving you that first watch perspective. AJ has seen each and every episode plenty of times. He is our grizzled veteran, if you will. And he will be giving you that rewatch perspective. This week, we're going to be talking about season three, episode 11 of Criminal Minds. It's entitled Birthright. Birthright. Yes, indeed. This episode was written by my favorites, Deborah J. Fisher and Erica Messer. And directed by John Gallagher. It originally aired on December 12th. 2007. AJ, this week we open on an outdoor party. This party had me a little curious from the get-go because at first I thought, oh, high school kids. Then I thought, oh, college kids. <laughs> then I thought, oh, some straight up adults out there. What is going on? What kind of party is this? It's an outdoor party in a pasture. I would think it was more of a catch-all. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's one of those red cup parties that's outdoors and red solo cup type of parties. But mainly, I would say it's a college-age crowd. Yeah, I mean, 20-somethings-ish. <laughs> yes. I, I don't know. I think they, they tried to make this seem that it was more reckless and wanton than it, than it was. But it was... Everyone was legal, it seems. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> so there's no sneaking, I guess. Uh, yeah, it was, it, it was just kind of a weird party. That's all I'll say. <laughs> well, you know, and and again, the weirdness of the party uh, exacerbated by the fact that the, everyone there is going, "Hey, you hear about you hear about Julie who, who vanished three weeks ago, and no one knows where she is or anything?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's have a party. This topic of conversation at the party is all about missing Julie. Uh, yeah, it's just a strange situation altogether. We see several couples talking about this missing Julie. And there's this one girl that we sort of focus in on. And she just believes that Julie just took off. Maybe you'll find her in New York City somewhere living her best life. She doesn't really believe uh, anything too bad has happened. And then uh, all of a sudden, there's some commotion, and this girl that we just saw starts to scream because a, a guy staggers into the scene when he's 
looks like he's bleeding from his neck. He's looking worse for the wear and trying to breathe, and he falls to the ground. But it turns out this clown is just Danny. Uh, (laughs) And Danny is one of those dudes that thinks he's real funny, and he's going to freak out people by scaring them with stupid practical jokes. So Danny was just being a jerk, basically. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, I guess, the uh, screech of the bus. (laughs) And so a little bit later, the uh, girl from before is off in sort of a secluded area of the pasture with her boyfriend. And they're they're making out, probably about to get a little uh, jiggy with it, so to speak. All of a sudden, they hear a noise off in the in the woods that it's sort that are sort of behind them, and they think it's Danny playing another joke, sort of messing with them. So the uh, boy goes off to investigate, and the girl, who we will quickly learn her name is Molly. Molly, you in danger, girl. <laughs> so he goes off. He doesn't find anybody. He comes back to the clearing, and the girl. Molly is missing. Some clothes are there on a blanket, but the girl is gone. Poof. Like that. Vanished. Yes. So next, we cut to the BAU office, and uh, JJ is on the phone, and uh, she's telling whoever she's talking to on the phone, yeah, I'm sure the the team is going to feel the same way about the case as I do, and we'll be there as soon as we can. She hangs up and uh, she looks at some pictures she has of of the girls. And she looks a bit concerned, I would say. JJ seems to be affected by whatever this case is. Yeah, she's lingering, lingering on that one. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. So she goes into the uh, conference room to explain the case to the team. Apparently, last night in uh, Fredericksburg, Virginia, there was a 20-year-old woman named Molly McCarthy who was abducted. She happens to be the third, go missing in the last six weeks. All of these uh, girls have disappeared from public public places, and no one's seen them since. And Rossi says, until now. <laughs> Which makes no sense when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really, like, oh, thanks, Rossi, <laughs> for that, uh, <laughs> that part. Yeah, unfortunately, a few days ago, body parts uh, that had cigarette burns on them were recovered from a national park, which was the site of the Battle of Chancellorsville. And we see some grisly crime scene photos on the monitors, including one of an arm cut off uh, all by itself uh, in some bushes. And it's pretty gross. So they're in there in the office, AJ, talking about the case, asking if they were able to identify that victim that was found Apparently, this is the first victim that was taken six weeks ago. She's been dead for just over a week, which means that he likes spending some time with his victims. And uh, they did find a microscopic tool which made these cuts. I thought that was kind of gross and disgusting. And then Reed chimes in that he does remember a case very similar to this one that took place in Spotsylvania County. (laughs) which uh, I didn't look up, but I find it interesting. There's Spotsylvania somewhere here in the United States. Oh, oh yes, there is. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but the uh, reason Reed brings it up is because there was the same exact same markings on the bones. And uh, JJ actually has, has already looked up that case. She says it was in 1980. 
also took place in Fredericksburg. Five women ages 16 to 24 were taken and they were buried in pieces, had the same markings, and in fact were buried at the same Civil War battlefield site. So it seems to be like maybe this is some kind of anniversary. Um, The older case is still open and they feel like perhaps these women are still alive. And Emily says, wait, do we we think this is actually the same killer. That's kind of a long time that he was, he took off there. And Morgan is pointing out, well, the BTK resurfaced after 25 years. And Reed says, yeah, but he didn't really kill anyone. He was only coming back to taunt the police. Rossi says, this is a very specific signature this this guy has. It's very hard to copycat any details if they were never made public. And uh, Hotch tells Garcia to check the uh, MO against girls missing in other states. Maybe it can explain the long absence. Garcia says she's on it. And JJ just is sitting there staring at the pictures of the victims on the monitors while Rossi says, if this is the same unsub, what's he been doing for the past 27 years? Indeed. I mean, JJ's clearly got something going on yeah. in that head of hers because we've, we, we've been on, uh, what, the episode's, what, five minutes old at this point and about two and a half minutes has been her staring at photos. Yeah. She, she, something is on JJ's mind. So next we cut to a barn where we see a woman suspended in the air, sort of chained to a hook from the ceiling. And the door to the barn opens and a woman with a sack over her head is dragged into the barn by our unsub. He takes the sack off of her head and she sees the, the other girl hanging from the hook. And they recognize each other. The girl says, uh, Julie and... Uh, Julie is there to tell her the rules, apparently. She says, Molly, look, if you're quiet, you won't get burned. Just trust me and do what he says. Our unsub has a little cassette player nearby, and he starts playing, and we hear the sounds of honky-tonk woman playing. The unsub is like, go on, show her. So Julie starts dancing, and she says, see, it's a party. So she's demonstrating what the unsub wants them to do. And Molly is like, oh, no, because she realizes uh, this is not a good situation for her. She realizes she hates the Rolling Stones. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't it have been the Beatles? And we go to credits. Criminal Minds, Criminal Minds, Criminal Minds, Criminal Minds, Criminal Minds. It's criminal. So we don't have our jet this week, AJ, because... It's in Virginia, so we're just driving. To I the wouldn't scene. put it past on the fly in the chat face for that anyway, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> and uh, while they're coming up to the scene, we hear Hotch give our opening quote. The American poet Anne Sexton once wrote, It doesn't matter who my father was, it matters who I remember he was. Which is relevant to this case, but not for a long time. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> that uh, little hint there, Criminal Minds. Reed is in the back of a car SUV looking at the pictures of the victims. And they're saying that the killer obviously doesn't like women. He sees them as disposable and worthless. And the way the bodies are cut up, you need a lot of time and privacy to do this. Hotch mentions that back in the day, the theory for the original crimes was that he was some kind of seasonal worker on one of the farms. And so they arrive to the state park or the monument scene. I guess it's a park. 
built around where the battle was. Yeah, which, I mean, questions of jurisdiction and things like that. But he didn't call on the FBI because of that? He could have... Whatever. There's no need to muddy this up. Yeah. Yeah, they they do find it kind of strange that he's always dumping these bodies in the same battlefield, no matter what risk he would have to take to do so. Hotch is saying, well, it is a respected landmark, so this guy is is taunting us. He's flaunting. He feels important if he does this. And then we cut to what I thought looks like a cave, and the girls were chained up next to each other, still suspended from hooks on the ceiling. But they're now uh, next to each other. Oh, what a feeling <laughs> when there's hooks up on the ceiling. Uh, dynamite. So outrageous. outrageous. That's the phrase I was looking for. Damn it. <laughs> the joke doesn't work if you use Jimmy Walker instead of Lionel Richie. It sucks. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> the girls are talking to each other. And Julie, who was the one that they were talking about before, that went missing is asking Molly if everybody thinks she just ran away. And Molly admits, no, it was just, it was just her. She was being stupid. And the whole town is looking for you. Everybody's out searching for you, including your mom and dad. They don't, they don't think you would take off like that. She asks her how long she's been there. And Molly is like three weeks. And uh, she asks if this guy is, is doing that to her every night. By Dan doing that to her, uh, we get a sense that it's more than just dancing for a party <laughs> type of yes, thing. I think it's a very nice, uh, they do a nice job here of implying everything they need to imply without having to go into graphic detail. So Yeah. Julie says, you just have to go to a different place. It's the only way you can get through it. We then cut to the pasture where the party was and our BAU team arrives. JJ introduces herself to the sheriff who thanks them for coming uh, so quickly. Hotch and and Reed are there and the sheriff takes them uh, to the crime scene. And he says, if this, I was thinking if this is the same killer that was out before, I I didn't want to waste any time before I got you guys in here to help. JJ tells uh, the sheriff that their other agents are meeting one John Caulfield, who was the sheriff from the original case. And Reed asks if he knows him. And the sheriff says, no, he doesn't know him personally. He just heard stories about how he was a decent, good sheriff. But then uh, when this case happened, it really broke him because he couldn't find the killers. And he started drinking and his marriage fell apart. And finally, they asked him to retire. But no, he knows nothing about him. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) No, don't really know him, but yeah, exactly. We then cut to the sheriff's station in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Caulfield walks in there asking if he's in the right place. Uh, Rossi is there and introduces himself. Also introduces Morgan and Prentice. And Morgan says, we're just going over your old case. And he looks at the file and he's like, oh, Sharon Croninger, she was 16 years old. We found her body in pieces. I promised her parents that I would find out who did this. And then finally her father passed away. And I kind of wonder if that was the case that broke him in the case. He seemed kind of surprised that that was the case they wanted to talk to him about. But I would think, I don't know. I I guess he didn't work on just one case, but... (laughs) 
No, but I think I think part of it is I mean this guy comes in, he's got a cane and he looks, you know, Santa Clausy. He's you know, he's just an old, old man. You wouldn't you wouldn't look at him and go, ah, retired sheriff. Right. <laughs> You'd go, old man who lives in town. Uh and so, you know, there's there's that aspect of it and just, oh, a chance to come back and revisit my friends at the police. Day. Oh, the case. You know, I think it's more that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and and the fact that he has instant recall of the case, just, you know, he knows names and details immediately without having to be refreshed on it. It's like, you know, this this is the case that right. he, he lives with. So I don't think it was a surprise. It was more just like, uh, I forgot how much I know about this case. Right. <laughs> One thing that was different from the original case and the current case is that originally the victims were uh, runaways and prostitutes, and now they are apparently just college kids. And part of that was due to the fact that the community changed from 1980 to now. So that just he that's what changed the victim type. There wasn't any particular reason it was whoever was available. Is, is what they figure from that. And Caulfield is saying, well, it's not normal for a killer to stop for 27 years. And Morgan is like, no, but he could have been in prison. He could have been injured. He may have moved and come back. And Rossi says he must have found other ways to satisfy his needs. We cut back to the pasture, the party pasture. And the sheriff is explaining there was about 20 kids partying 100 yards over that way. And then Molly was taken here. We found her blanket, sweatshirt, and a pair of shoes. And JJ is like, still something bothering her. She's like, how does nobody see them or hear them? She's just not in the best of moods. And uh, <laughs> which she, I, I'm not saying you should be in a party mood when you come to a crime scene. I'm just saying she's not our normal JJ pretty much for this whole episode. And the sheriff is just like, it was dark when he took her, so this guy had an advantage, and Molly's boyfriend was the last person to see her. She was alone for a minute, maybe less. And Hotch says, well, this guy is patient, and he works fast. It seems like he's perfected our MO. And Hotch says, well, you know, if this guy is pushing 60 years old, he's got to be strong enough to carry her a long way without her struggling. So they're kind of assuming that we're dealing with the same, the same killer here. Reed says, uh, there's a lot of properties around here on unmarked dirt roads with no visible street signs and nothing on the maps. And the sheriff says, yeah, if you uh, don't live around here, you'd have a real hard time finding your way around. And that leads Hotch to think that this guy is definitely local. So they go off and Hotch is looking at JJ. He's sort of standing off to the side, looking away. And he tells the sheriff and Reed he'll catch up to them. And then he goes to talk to JJ. And he says, uh, you know, ever since we had Jack, I always dread it when you bring me a case involving kids. And JJ's like, well, why do you, what makes you bring that up? And Hot says, well, every case we work and every case we don't work comes across your desk. And most of the victims are women and most of them are about your age. So it's okay if you lose it every once in a while. It, it reminds people we're human. And JJ is like, well, you never lose it. And Hotch says, almost cryptically, maybe I should have. Yes, I wrote in my notes the word cryptically as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a certain tone there. I like, you know, I like the fact that Hotch is like uh, notices. Yeah, he can tell. Uh, yeah, he's like, look, you know, 
we see some horrible crap in this job and we only see half of the stuff. You have to see all of the stuff. So, oof. Yeah. Oof. A big oof. Then we cut to uh, the barn where the girls are hung up and Julie says to Molly, promise me if I die, you will never tell my parents what he did to us. And Molly is like, you're not going to die. And the unsub was there. I didn't even realize at this time. He's like off to the side. He tells them to quiet. And Julie just tells Molly, you got to promise. You got to promise. Then the honky tonk woman song starts up. She's saying, we're going to get out of here. We're going to get out of here. The unsub comes over and he unlocks Julie. She crumples down to the ground. She can barely move. You can tell all of her spirit has kind of drained from her at this point. And he's telling her to go. And she's trying, but she can't really do it. Uh, he's dragging her by her hair. They say, do it, do it. And then Julie says she's trying. And Molly is, you know, screaming and freaking out. Meanwhile, we see that the unsub is dragging her past a very shiny looking axe. It looks almost brand new, this axe. If it's the same one he's used before, he's cleaned it between between kills uh, Which is also very telling that he takes better care of the acts than he does these these women, you know? Yeah, true. True. And then Molly is screaming, watching whatever is going on with the acts. And uh, obviously it's not good. The last thing she yells out to Julie is that she promises. So she'll keep her promise to her. Yeah, again, very nice job with this episode. I mean, we, you know... We sometimes criticize this show for being a little too graphic when it doesn't need to be. This is, this is a very good episode of like, we know, we saw body parts <laughs> coming up earlier in in the episode. We, we pretty much know this is a body part situation here where she's about to be hacked to death. So we don't need to see that. Let's go to commercial. No, we don't. <laughs> uh, we, we come back from commercial and we're back at the crime scene. And now we see some text, crime scene text with garbage bags and we can leave it to our imaginations that there are body parts in these bags again thankfully they don't show us that the sheriff is like okay now i've got two sets of parents out there that are waiting to find out what the id is on this body we need to know uh who this is and, and jj says she'll, she'll help him with that yes although i mean they probably they probably have an idea that it's the older <laughs> right. D. I mean, obviously, you're not going to tell the parents that, but you know, uh, privately amongst themselves, it's probably Julie. Uh, you know, at least right. brace yourselves for that. The sheriff points out that he didn't spread all the body parts around this time; they were just sort of out there in plain sight. And Reed says he's taunting us. He's saying, "I'm doing this, and there's nothing you can do to stop me." The sheriff mentions, "Well, nobody can get in here without showing their ID." And JJ has a copy a copy of the visitors list, but there's hundreds of ways in from anywhere. There, the fences all back up to personal properties all along the on um, all along the grounds, and it's clear to Hutch that this guy knows these grounds as well as anyone. He could have jumped a fence anywhere and disposed of his victims, and then walked right back out. Which basically means that the the local police would have wasted their time checking all these names on this list. Yep. Like, yeah, no, we. You really don't need to check the names on this list. Just like, not everybody signs. Not everybody signs their right name. You know, like this. Right. And there's, it, it's woods. It's, it, it's, you know, it's, 
a giant park area. No. Exactly. We cut back to Molly, and she's in a cage at this point, still chained up. She's screaming, let me out of here. Help, help, let me out of here. And then the camera zooms back, and we see that she's now not in the barn, but she's in a cave somewhere, like with barely a hole as an entrance and like a, a, a grilled iron gate over the, the entrance that's locked. Then the camera zooms even further back. We see woods, mountains. She's clearly completely isolated in some cave somewhere. Yeah, it's a nice shot. It's a nice uh, way of showing how isolated she is. Like, you know, scream all you want. No one's, no <laughs> one's hearing her. Yeah. We cut back to outside the police station and we're on the steps and Rossi is sitting down next to the older sheriff, Caulfield. He's, he's talking to him about how, you know, people around there think he's crazy, but Rossi doesn't really believe in those legends, as he says. And the sheriff, Caulfield, explains himself. He just, at the time, he didn't want to think someone from there could have done this crime. And Rossi says, you know, no, you believed in your community as like no shame in that. But Caulfield says, well, yeah, that was probably my mistake. Rossi says, it's a pretty common one. And then he says, I want to show you something. And he says, I carry this wherever I go. And he pulls out the little pendant that we saw him have in his introductory episode that had the names of the kids on it. But we never really got an explanation of it before. But now... Rossi gets to explain that it's not his kids. These were uh, some kids in Indianapolis. One of his first cases on the job, he had three kids that watched their parents get beaten to death. And he says, every year I call them to tell them I haven't forgotten. I'm still looking. And last year, not one of them bothered to return my call. So he says, uh, yeah, come on inside. We're wasting time. And that was that little scene. Yeah, well, at least we get a little bit I mean, more insight of this giant mystery that Morgan's been trying to figure out. Right. <laughs> and Rossi just refuses to tell him, but he'll tell this, this crazy old local yokel cop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so next we go back inside the police station and we see Prentice. She's gotten something off of a fax machine and she comes over to uh, to let them know. She's found a list of violations in the county that preceded the 1980 murders. She's found like a DUI, some petty thefts, rape, assault. A few of them are repeat offenders. And at that moment, Morgan brings in his cell phone, which is open. Uh, He's saying Garcia's found something. And we hear Garcia's voice before we actually see her in our office. And she says, oh, don't worry. It's not contagious. Just as a joke to the fact that she's got something. (laughs) Lighten the mood. (laughs) (laughs) Great job, Penelope. But good for her. I mean, I don't know how long this is, but, you know, she's back at work now. And, <laughs> and we've seemed to have forgotten about her most recent uh, issue. <laughs> they dealt with it. She was, she was yeah. bruised for a while. I mean, like, no need to, it's, you know, she's going to heal. No need to belabor that too much longer. Yeah. Uh, so she didn't find anything on this guy's M.O., but she did find something else. She found a complaint in the next county over filed by a woman named Karen Foley. The story was awful, but she was kidnapped in 1979. Uh, She managed to escape. And Caulfield is like, oh, gee, I never heard that story. 
And Rossi tells him, well, it wasn't your jurisdiction. And then they start to think about this Karen Foley. Maybe she was the first. Maybe she was, uh, as Morgan says, this guy's dress rehearsal. Uh, He figured out who and where to hunt and what worked, what didn't work. And Rossi says, yeah, seems like careful planning has always been maybe part of his process. So they ask where Karen Foley is now. And Garcia gets them the address. We cut to a home and there's a woman arriving there. She's getting out of her car with her groceries. Prentice and Morgan walk up to her. Prentice introduces herself and Morgan. She says, we're from the FBI. Do you have a minute? She's curious. FBI. Prentice says, yes, we're investigating the murders of two women and another abduction of a third woman in Fredericksburg. And Miss Foley uh, has heard of this case. Yes. She says it's awful. And Morgan says, well, we think that this may be related to what happened to you in 1979, your abduction. Karen is like immediately, oh, no, didn't happen. You guys are mistaken. They ask her what she's talking about. She says, look, I made the whole thing up. They don't seem to believe her. Emily says, look, we've read your report. You were drugged, burned, beaten, sexually assaulted, held against your will. And Karen says, look, I was 17. I had to have some kind of excuse for where I'd been. Morgan asks her where that was. And she just says, around. She was using drugs back then. And uh, Morgan says, well, look, you called home. And usually uh, offenders will force their victims to contact home to explain their whereabouts. But Karen is like, look, there was no offender. And Morgan says, yeah, but a lot of details in your report are consistent with what happened to those women in 1980. And Karen is asking if they're calling her a liar. She says, Prentice says, we understand if you're trying to protect yourself from the memory. But right now, you're really the only person that can help us. Please make it so that no other women have to suffer. Just let us know what you know. She refuses. She says she's not a lead. She's sorry. She hopes they find whoever did this. She goes into her house. Emily puts their business card in her door. Yeah, she uh, she is protesting an awful lot. <laughs> um, and I'm glad that our, our, our BAU uh, detectives are not going to uh, be fooled by this because she's just like, oh, no, la, 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 la. No, la, la, la. Oh, oh, wait, no, la, la. <laughs> yeah. She is not hearing it. Oh, uh, so now we cut back to the police station and Morgan and Princess are back now. They walk up to tell Rossi that Karen Foley basically recanted the whole story. They believe she's lying because something happened to her. She was avoiding eye contact. She was very defensive. She just refused to admit what happened. And Rossi is like, yeah, she just couldn't open that door again she couldn't she couldn't because she would be afraid she could never come back Prentice says yeah but right now she's the only person she's protecting is the offender and Morgan says we told her this guy could still be out there and she wasn't even concerned she wasn't even scared at all and she he wonders why and Rossi says well maybe they've got nothing to be afraid of Caulfield is there he's like well where are you guys going with all this And basically, they're explaining that she'd only come back because she had moved away. She would only be feeling so confident and so comfortable if she thought it was safe. Like if she knew something that indicated that this person who did it to her either moved away or 
he's dead. And Rossi is telling Caulfield, look, you know who this guy is. He grew up here too. He would have been in his mid-20s back then. And he left after you found the last victim. And Caulfield is sort of thinking about it. And he looks at, I believe he looks at some records here. If he doesn't let me know. But yeah, he no, says that. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's looking at his uh, little records. He's trying to jog his memory and everything. I mean, this again is an, another week where they're doing the profile, but it's like a mini profile right here just for Caulfield. It's I, I again I like I like this. We don't I don't need you to stop all the action and bring everybody into a room and then they're like, all right, gather around, get like do it now. This is when you need it. Right. Caulfield has found a case December 13th, 1980, and Morgan is basically saying, like you said, the profile, he may have gone to prison, he could have joined the military, moved moved away. He would have arrest for DUI, that type of thing. And Rossi says, this is your case right here. This guy was meticulous. He may have had two areas of control, both private, one to torture and one to confine them. So again, as you said, he's just, they're basically profiling this guy. And Caulfield finally finds the one or thinks of the one that it is. He says, Robert, Robert Wilkinson, Wilkinson. And Emily has his file. She says, three DUI, spent a few days in jail. And Caulfield says, well, he's dead. He was 28 when that happened. He fell into a combine harvester. And Morgan's like, when was this? And Emily says, December 1980, right when the killings happened to stop. Karen Foley moved back right after that. So Morgan asks if Wilkinson was survived by anyone. And Caulfield says he had a widow. And again, this is one of those instances where you you can't fault this guy for not having picked up on Robert Wilkinson. But when you you know retrospectively look back at this, okay, think about it. Is there anyone in town who moved away or died, and then everything stopped? <laughs> you yeah. know, there was this guy who died, and then everything stopped. <laughs> it huh. seems so simple, and I realize that in real time that you, that might not be something you notice. But right, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he died, and then nobody else went missing or got killed, huh? Funny that. Interesting. So we next cut to a house, the Wilkinson house, and uh, Mary Wilkinson is there. She says hello to the sheriff because they've arrived to talk to her. And meanwhile, on the porch <laughs> with uh, with Mary and the sheriff, there we see like an older grandma type looking lady sitting in a rocking chair on the porch and she's there when they leave. But I don't think they like referred to her once or talked to her once AJ. She was just kind of there. What's what's even more amusing is that like, she's the, she's the thumbnail picture on IMDb for this episode. Oh, wow. Really? (laughs) She had nothing nothing to do with this episode except she's sitting in a chair, which is because I often like will go back and and look look at the thumbnails and see, hmm, I'm trying to remember. I'm trying, hmm, what was in this episode? You click on the episode and all you see is this woman on the chair. (laughs) That's wild. Yeah. That is crazy. So anyway, they go into uh, into Mary's house. The sheriff asks how her son is, and she mentions, oh, he's married now, and he's doing just fine. But look, I know you guys didn't just come by to see how I was doing. And Caulfield tells her that they're investigating a case. 
and it led them to Robert. And she says, well, okay, he's been dead for 27 years. So what, what, what has he done now? <laughs> like, <laughs> what do you think he did now? Yes. Get some hauntings going on? <laughs> but Rossi answers, actually, we think he murdered five women in 1980. Caulfield is like, yeah, I'm sh- pretty sure you would remember. And she says, look, I'm sorry. I haven't thought about him in a long time. And uh, Rossi is like, yeah, well, you were a young widow. Sheriff said you had to raise a son by yourself. It's hard to believe you wouldn't think about him from time to time. And she says, look, I never felt sorry for myself. And Rossi is still saying, well, women who are widowed young often consider themselves victims. And Mary is like, no, I moved on. I moved back here with my parents. I stayed here for a bit while I was pregnant. Robert was a mean drunk. He begged me to come home, said he changed. Rossi asks if he did. She says, I don't know, because he died the day I went back. Then we cut to outside of the house, and we see it's a little bit later, and Caulfield is on on the porch with Mary talking to her. And probably the old lady, too. (laughs) Yeah, No, she was there. I checked. She was there, but... Uh, nothing. <laughs> I think they were ignoring her. I think it may have been a ghost, AJ. But they, they just weren't gonna. Or, or, or maybe the scene was a little longer, <laughs> and we just cut all the parts with her. But yeah, it, it <laughs> certainly you, you, you're not gonna forget this old lady. <laughs> yeah. So meanwhile, as uh, Caulfield is talking to Mary, Rossi walks over to Prentice and Morgan, who were out waiting by the car. Prentice is like, she didn't seem upset. And Rossi's like, she wasn't even surprised. She didn't ask why we thought he did it. She suspected him. He was a drunk. She got pregnant and left him. Prentice is like, hmm, abandonment. He might have had the same issue with his mother. Either way, he can't handle it. It's a stressor. So he starts killing. And Morgan is like, yeah, Madonna horror complex. (laughs) He couldn't touch his poor, pure wife. So he had to find disposable girls. And Prentice says, but then the killing stopped when he died. So who's doing it now? I mean, and that is the question. That is the question. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you for summarizing the episode thus far. Okay, we still have no suspects. <laughs> so now we cut to a farm, a farm fruit stand, I would say. Yeah, there is, absolutely. Yeah. There's a, a car parked in front. A woman gets out of the car. She seems very happy with life. She sort of bounces over there and, and calls out for Mr. Parker, who is apparently the proprietor. But Mr. Parker is not around. She sees a sign that says he's going to be back in five minutes. So she decides she's going to get some fruit and she puts some money in the little container. She's clearly done this before. Yes. Yeah, it, it always made me uncomfortable with these roadside stands. You know, like, if I take it, when what's the good timing on this? Because you 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 want to make sure I have the pie. <laughs> I'm putting the money in because you know right. she can walk back to her car. No, I already paid. Like no, you didn't. <laughs> right, exactly. Meanwhile, as she's doing all this, a pickup truck pulls up in the parking lot and parks next to her, and the guy is out of the truck very quickly and walks over to her as she's at the fruit stand from behind her. And before she can even react, he's got her grabbed by the neck and he's putting a a sack over her head and dragging her off. And we cut to a break. Yeah. I mean, kudos to to the unsub for the speed on this one because he he didn't mess around. He was deliberate. 
Uh, I think we learned that the bad guys drive Fords and victims drive VWs. I think that's <laughs> car product placement, baby. <laughs> then come back over from the break to the police station, and JJ is letting them know that there's been another abduction. The sheriff says her name is uh, Tara Ricker. Her family called this morning. She didn't come home last night. We're still trying to find the vehicle. And JJ says, so we know this guy kills after he takes another victim, so we're running out of time. And so Hotch says, well, what do we know? And Emily says, well, we're definitely dealing with the copycat. He has the same MO, same dump site. And they never released any of that information to the press, which is what Rossi is checking with Caulfield. And he says, no. So Reed says, well, he had to learn it from somebody then, a family member or a friend. JJ says, well, Mary and Robert Wilkinson had a son. Caulfield is like, are you suggesting that there is a genetic predisposition to the killing? Which just didn't seem like a sentence that would come from his mouth, but okay. (laughs) Very, very, very true. And it's even more ridiculous as he starts to detail Charlie's life that he would say this sentence. But yes, uh, Hotch tells him that can be a factor, that this whole thing could be a stressor. And yes, Caulfield is like, well, I remember Charlie Wilkinson when he was 15, killed a neighbor's cat. <laughs> he put it he put it in a bag and and swung it against a tree. <laughs> so yeah. Like, again, again. It could be Robert <laughs> and Mary's son, Charlie? Well, he did kill the cat by putting it in a bag and bashing against a tree. But do you mean to tell me that you're implying that genetics are a factor here? Who cares? <laughs> yeah, Charlie wants to kill the cat by bashing him to death. <laughs> ding, ding. Red flag. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, they ask him how old Charlie is, and Caulfield says, well, Mary was pregnant with him when Robert died, so that was 27 years ago, which makes him roughly the same age that Robert was when he started killing. <laughs> which, again... It's about the seventh time this episode that they've said 27 years ago or 27, 27, he was 27. And the fact that it took this long for them to go, you know, <laughs> uh, it's 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 just ugh, it's the part of the writing that I, I really hate. <laughs> yeah. So then uh, Morgan gets a call from Garcia and uh, she says she found out the reason why Karen Foley was lying to them. So we cut back immediately to the Foley house which i'm glad we didn't have any conversation we just cut to the (laughs) the end result of that conversation with garcia and she's asking them what they're doing back there she she said before she didn't know anything and prentice says we know that he burned you mrs foley and all of the other victims had those burns too and emily says we know that you were raped by robert wilkinson and we know that you have a son because of it. And she just looks distraught, but clearly they, they've got clearly, her number. Ding, basically. ding, ding, ding. Meanwhile, we cut to back to the cave. Tara, our latest victim, is talking to Molly. She's saying, oh, there was another girl here. And Molly says, listen to me. Her name was Julie Stanton. And I promised her parents that no one would never know what he did to us. And when Tara asks her why she's telling her this... She says, well, because he's going to kill me first. Ah, uh, too bad for Molly. She has pretty much seen what's yeah, going on but here. I mean, again, it's, I will say this season uh, in particular, but pretty much ever since they lost uh, Mandy Patinkin as an actor on the show because he was complaining about the portrayal of women on the show, the female victims in particular have been smart. 
they've been portrayed as understanding like it's not they're, they're not victim blaming they're like, like these these women were abducted through no fault of their own they didn't do anything stupid or if they did do something stupid they're still you know they have the wherewithal to like oh well that was dumb but i'm not dumb like you know the blame is on the unsubs in these in these cases so i think that they're doing a much better job of it right so we cut back to karen foley's house and she's telling prentice and rossi look Stephen doesn't know the truth. She never told him about his father. In fact, she made him out to be some kind of hero who died in a motorcycle accident. And Prentice asks her why she decided to go ahead and have the child. And she says, well, she just couldn't make the baby pay for what the father did. And Rossi asks if he's drinking again. And she says, yes, he just got out out of jail for a DUI. And Rossi asks if he's been hostile or gone gone away for long periods of time. And she says, well, look, why are you asking me all these questions? They tell her, well, she lied about her past because she was protecting her son. And Prentice says, you're scared he could be hurting these women, aren't you? And they need to talk to him. And she nods her head, basically in tears. Yeah, you know, it's good for the story at this point to set up the fact, because, you know, otherwise, Char- yeah, Charlie, you killed a cat. It must be, he must be the other side. Like, <laughs> oh, but... It might be this other guy who also has the DUIs and has been hostile at right. some point. So it's like, okay, there's two possibilities. So this this case still has some interesting mystery behind it, perhaps. I think I would still go with the cat killer, but oh, sure. we're still looking <laughs> looking at him. We're still trying to find out. Yeah. yeah, they haven't they haven't disproved discredited anyone from having done it yet. Exactly. Uh, we do cut back to the fruit stand and. The sheriff is there looking at Tara's car. He's telling Hotch and JJ as they arrive that the car is clean. They're checking it for prints and whatnot right now. And Hotch is asking the sheriff how long it's been there. And the he says that the fruit stand owner said since last night. And JJ, again, upset. How the hell do you not find that suspicious? I gotta say, totally with JJ on this one. Especially because, right. forget the car. Uh, when he, she was abducted... Uh, all the fruit fell to the ground around her. I'm, I'm right. sure the, that the unsub did not stop to repopulate the stalls and make sure all the fruit was nice and neat. The fruit was probably still laying there. So there's a car and all your fruit is lying on the ground. Something's up. So I'm with you. And nobody there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. And the sheriff just says, look, he was back and forth from the farm, says he just didn't pay much attention till he heard Tara Ricker was missing. The customers don't have any information from him from the fruit stand. Nobody remembers seeing Tara. That's that's, that's fine. But he should have called it in earlier. That's all. She still would have been abducted. It it didn't really hurt. They were looking for her anyway. So I don't think anything would have come of it. Uh, But yeah, JJ has a right to be upset. Although we, we know that she's got loose nerves this week right her phone rings and she picks it up and it's reed and uh she gets the message from him and then she tells hotch yep charlie wilkinson did not show up for work today so hotch says let's go see if he's home meanwhile we cut back to the foley house and young steven has walked inside and he sees prentice and rossi sitting on his couch basically waiting for him and he says to his mom, yeah, I knew something was wrong. While Prentice and, and Rossi introduce themselves and say they're investigating the disappearance of four women from the area. 
And Stephen is like, yeah, a girl was taken over at the Monroe farm. I heard about that. And Emily asks him if he knows anything about it. And he says he doesn't know anything. They ask him if the name Robert Wilkinson means anything to him. This is, of course, is getting Karen to be like, no, please, let's not go here. We don't want to go there. But Stephen says, no, no, it's it's okay. Is this about what he did to my mom? And she's like, wait, what are you talking about? So basically, Stephen knew the story of his parentage, uh, of his father. He says, look, you thought you could keep it a secret. I've known for a long time that Robert Wilkinson raped you. She asks him why he's saying this. And she said, he says, look, you never got married. You never dated. You would used to cry yourself to sleep every night. I knew that someone had hurt you. And then one day I was cleaning out the garage and I found that article about the man who died in the farming accident, Robert Wilkinson. And uh, there was a picture of him and another article about women disappearing, being found dead. Just at that moment, you walked in the door and saw me holding that picture the way you looked at me, I knew. And she says, but that was 10 years ago. And you knew I made it up. You knew this whole time, basically. And Stephen is just like, yep, they were really great stories you told me. She says, look, I just wanted you to believe he was a good man. You're the only good thing that came out of it. Stephen uh, turns to the to Rossi and is like, so what do you think that this old case is somehow connected to the new murders? And Prentice is like, yes, we do. And he says, but Wilkinson's dead. And then he kind of slowly realizes what what they're here for. And he says, but I'm not. And then he looks at his mom. He wonders if she thinks he did this. And if she thought that he turned out like him, why would she even have him? And she says, look, she's never regretted her decision. Never. And I'm sorry. I don't want to doubt you. And he just says, I didn't kill anybody and sort of leaves the room at that moment. Yeah, I guess this it's. Again, good, good writing, uh, good acting on this. This is like, but what does it have to do with? Oh, okay, I got it. No, I didn't do it. Da, 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 da. Like, it's good reaction, like yeah. believable. And at this point, I, uh, you know, if I'm watching this reaction, I'm like, all right, he's one B, <laughs> and I'm leaning towards yeah. no at this point. Now, you can't take him off the yeah, table, he, but yeah, he really doesn't seem like the unsub type. But Rossi uh, calls over to Hotch and says, what's going on? And Hotch is like, well, Morgan and Reed went to find Charlie Wilkinson and he wasn't at work. And Rossi tells him, well, we can't rule out Stephen Foley just yet. Hotch lets him know that they're on their way to the Wilkinson house. And so Rossi says, let us know what you find. Meanwhile, we cut back to uh, Prentice and she's talking to Karen and she's saying, can you please just tell us what he did to you? She says she'll try. And as she's going over this, we sort of see the images of what happened to her sort of right by the side of her head and sort of a dual a split screen type of thing. And she's saying, well, he took me out to the barn. And then we also hear Honky Tonk Woman is playing. So he never changed his tape <laughs> at all. She says he, he would cover my head. So I didn't know where I was, but he kept me high the whole time. So I didn't even know what day it was. He wanted me to dance for him. He'd call it a party. And then one night he was just so passed out that she realized that she could escape through the barn door and uh, she was able to get away. Steven is like, and the cops didn't believe your story. And she says, they just thought I was a junkie. It was humiliating. And Rossi says, uh, did you see any other girls there? And she says, uh, no, she was the only one. 
She can't remember any details about her surroundings. Prentice asks her to try. Nothing's too small. And she mentions that she scratched a little peace symbol on the wall and that she'd touch it every night before he came in for her. And that was her guardian angel. Crappy guardian angel, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, although he did let her get away. So Okay, yeah. Uh, after how many times? <laughs> every night. Oh, no, no. Can't, can't protect you today. Maybe tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, not the best. So uh, JJ and Morgan, we see them arriving at the Wilkinson home and a woman answers the door. This is Chrissy Wilkinson and she is pregnant. Oh, did you notice that? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. She asks them what they're there for. JJ introduces them, them and tells her they're from the FBI and they're looking for Charles. Is he there? She says, no, he's at work. And JJ is immediately, he's not there. Do you mind if we take a look around? And she's like, I don't understand. What's this all about? JJ lets her know that they're investigating the murders of some local women. And Chrissy's like, and you're looking for Charlie? Morgan says, look, we can go get a a warrant if we need to. And so she sort of looks at them and JJ's like, ma'am. And she agrees to let them search. Which is always a sign, quite frankly, the, the way that, that Chrissy is reacting to this. Like, yeah, go ahead and search. I mean, she kind of knows that there's a possibility here. She wasn't like adamant, like, well, then you get that one. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. We cut to see the sheriff. He's using a crowbar to open the lock on the barn door. They go into the barn. They can see the chains coming down from the ceiling. They go in, guns appointed, looking for Charles. He doesn't appear to be there. Hotch opens a stable door and looks in, calls Reed over and he comes over and we see a bloody stump and the axe. Yeah. And then we cut to black. I, I, yes. I, I hate when they do this. Uh, they do it a lot on the show. I hate when Reed check this out. He hasn't seen it yet. <laughs> or if he has seen it, then there's no reason for the gun to continue to be drawn because he's already cl- cleared the room. So it's just, it's just a weird thing that they do where like, we have to get a second person over here. <laughs> I, I, right. Why? Why? <laughs> Just show us the hatchet, <laughs> or have Reed come in. Like, there's yeah. no need for, need for this. And they do this other thing, which is like we hear a, a, a voiceover of screaming woman as they go to break. Like, right. there's no screaming woman. I, I don't like it as a gimmick, but it's what they do. <laughs> <laughs> so we come back from break and we're back in the barn and Prentice is saying, look, this is obviously where he's been torturing them, but where is he keeping them? And Morgan says, well, it has to be someplace uh, isolated. He can't risk you know, storing them close by to his house. Rossi walks over to Caulfield and asks him if he knows the property at all. And he says, well, I only had contact with Robert in town, so he doesn't really know the property. So Rossi then goes out to talk to Mrs. Wilkinson. Mary, the mother. Yes, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Who for some reason is there, but she does explain it immediately. Like, like, what is she doing here, by the way? Like, oh, Chrissy told me what's going on. Call me over. Yep, exactly. And Rossi tells her that they're looking for Charlie. She doesn't even want to seem to want to know why. And Rossi sort of sort of starts going at her now. She, you know, you knew he was an angry kid. You made excuses when he killed the neighbor's cat. You saw the path he was going down. It's why you moved away from this place. 
you knew what happened here. And Mary's like, no, that's not true. And Rossi says, you were afraid of the stock he came from. You thought if you just took him away from it, if you took him away from his father's home, and if you kept it a big secret, everything would just be all right. And Mary's saying, no, I protected him. And Rossi says, problem is with a boy like Charlie with so much anger, so many questions, he needs to know where he came from and he won't, wouldn't quit until he knew. And then one day he figured it out. Mary is like, it was over. She's talking to Caulfield at this point. She says, it was over. You didn't have to worry about any other girls getting hurt. And I didn't want my son to have the legacy that his father was a murderer. Caulfield is like, well, where is Charlie now? And she says, she doesn't know. Honest, she doesn't know. Then we cut over to Hotch, who's talking to Chrissy. And he's asking her where Charlie goes when he wants to be alone. She says, well, the barn. And obviously he's not there. So (laughs) Hotch is like, where else? And Chrissy says she doesn't know. Meanwhile, JJ lets Hotch know that they found something and they have a a bunch of notebooks and I guess other clues. (laughs) Basically, the notebooks were all locked in in Charlie's closet and they look like they belong to Robert Wilkinson. And then Charlie got his hands on it. So Hotch says, so Charlie went looking for a father figure and this is who he found. And Reed is looking through one of the notebooks and it says uh, he was killing animals and it was clear that he had murderous impulses. And then finding this stuff must have made him feel like like it was almost his birthright. Hot says, is there anything in here about where he would keep these women? JJ says nothing yet. So he tells her to keep reading. We then cut back to the barn. Morgan is looking around the barn He's saying there's no peace sign in there. And Rossi says, well, it must be where he held them. And Emily says, Karen Foley says he'd make her walk outside. And Morgan says, well, do you think she can handle coming back to this place? Because it looks like maybe they want to bring Karen back over there. And so Rossi's like, do we really have a choice? So then we yes. cut to... Yes, we do. We cannot bring her back. <laughs> yes, that's that's true. <laughs> That would be the choice. (laughs) We cut back to Foley, Karen Foley. She's getting out of the car and Prentice thanks her for coming. She says, we know it's probably not easy for you. Steven is there. He says she's been shaking the whole time. And Prentice is like, you survived this once and it's made you stronger. They tell her she can do this. She gets out of the car. She's walking towards the barn. She's just like, oh God. And she recognizes the smell right away. It just that smell of the farm was a part of her. And then she looks over and she sees them talking to Mary Wilkinson and asks who that is. And they tell her she's like, oh, man, this is the wife of the man that had kidnapped her and tortured her and raped her. So she starts going at her. Basically, she's screaming at her. You know, he tortured me every night. Could you hear my screams? Did you kiss him? Kiss him when he was finished with me? And Emily's trying to calm her down and stop her. And she says, what did you think he was doing in the barn every night? Did you ask? Did you even know why he wanted to be away from you? Why didn't you stop him? Why didn't you help? At this point, Mary can't take it. So she just admits, I killed him before Charlie was born. I came home. I saw the place. I knew what he had done. Couldn't let my innocent baby be brought into this. So basically, she knew what had happened and that combine accident wasn't so much an accident as her taking care of business. And you know what? 
good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not good, but good. Like, I, is she, she, oh, I, I didn't know, but then I fi- figured it out and I did protect and stop. So suck it, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, we cut back into the Wilkinson home and the sheriff has brought Chrissy a glass of water and she says that she needs to rest for a little bit. And so he tells her, yeah, don't worry about it. Go get your rest. And she gets up and it clearly looks like she's not getting ready to go take a nap. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, she 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 totally says it in the right way. Will you stick around until Charlie gets home? You're going to stay here, here. You're staying right here until Charlie gets home because I'm afraid of Charlie. Uh, and so I want you to stay, stay here. <laughs> and I'm going to yeah. go in there. So don't check on me or anything because I want to <laughs> be in there, but sleeping. So don't check on me, but stay here. Okay. Yeah. She's definitely <laughs> going right in the back and, and going to sleep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we cut back to the barn. Karen Foley is looking at the scene and she turns to talk to Rossi. She says, look, I don't know where he would take me. He always had a bag over my head. They tell her maybe uh, your other senses can help you figure it out. Let's walk you through it. So Prentice asks her what the ground felt like. And they tell her to close her eyes and take a few steps. And she starts to remember what it was. She says there was leaves and twigs. Then there was a long walk and there was a hill I remember stumbling and I I landed on something. It was soft and cold, but it was covering something hard. Uh, It was rocks, taller rocks than me. Mary recognizes that she's there listening and she says, oh, that's alongside the north side of the property. And so Morgan says, yeah, Hotch, I think we got something. And they thank uh, Karen for helping. She said, did I help? And they tell her yes. Why is Mary in this room at this point? I don't know. I didn't think it. I think just so she could say, oh, I know that place. Okay, but she just confessed to murder. She should be, at the very least, she should be in the back of a cop car right now. And then when, you know, Karen remembers, hey, is there any place in this, you know, open the door. Is there any place on this property where, where, do you recognize what she's describing here? She should not be in that room. (laughs) (laughs) I get that it's convenience for for cutting the story down a little, but she just confessed to murder. (laughs) So we do now cut over to the cave in the rocks and Morgan and Hotch are there and they're going up and they, and they find it and uh, they see the, the gate that's over the hole of the cave and they have the sheriff open the lock And we can hear inside there, Molly is saying, hello, help us. We're in here. We're in here. Can you, can you come in? And they come in they find the women. They're asking if they're okay. Tara's there, but she's passed out, but she's all right. They call for an ambulance and Morgan is like, she's got a pulse. She's out though. Hotch is saying, where the hell is Charlie? Then we cut to a little bit later. We see Tara is being taken away on a stretcher. And JJ, of course, is over there comforting Molly because JJ is always thinking of whoever the victim is. So once again, that's what she's doing. <laughs> then we see Hotch going up to Mary. She's He's asking her where Charlie would go. And again, I ask you, why is Mary there? <laughs> <laughs> she said to them, she said to them, hey, it's on the north side. They, did, they didn't need her to direct them to it because they clearly went in without her. And then all of a sudden she's there. <laughs> 
but she doesn't know where Charlie would go. So Hotch asks her, well, what about your husband? Where would he go? And Mary thinks, well, there was a place on the battlefield just over the ridge. <laughs> and so Os- Hotch asks if she can show them. Yeah, yeah. well, he, he used to like go down to the uh, Pac-Man arcade down in town. It was 1980. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, So then we cut to, we see a bench that is in front of a statue in the in the park-like area. And our man, our unsub Charlie, is sitting there on the bench. And up behind him walks Chrissy. And she says, Charlie. And he's like, you know better than to bother me here. I think he's got some alcohol with him. So he's doing his drinking phase thing. He's unsubby. He's just a dick. <laughs> very, very unsubby, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, Chrissy lets him know that the FBI is at the farm. And I'm thinking at this point, oh, she's tipping. Oh, she's she doesn't care. She loves him, whatever. She's tipping this guy off. Uh, she's saying the unsub, the FBI is at the farm. <laughs> the unsub is at the farm. No, she's saying that the FBI is at the farm. They found a lot of blood in the barn. Sheriff thinks you killed those girls who have been missing. They have pictures. They have books and everything. That is that why you'd stay in the barn all night? What did you do to them, Charlie? Did you did you rape them? We're we're starting a family, and Charlie's like in a very dramatic statement. I never wanted that. And Chrissy says, "You're a liar and a sick son of a bitch, just like your daddy was." At that moment, we cut over to the team. Morgan and Hotch are walking along, I guess, going towards the the ridge. And all of a sudden, we hear some gunshots. So they start running. They take off. They run over to them. And we see Chrissy standing there over Charlie's body. And she says, he's gone. He came at me. I had to do it. The sheriff starts to, we see cut next to the sheriff who's taking Chrissy away. Before we get to that. So, yeah, he, uh, you know, right right before we cut to them, like, you know, you do see him wheel and turn like he's going to do something menacing. So we do see that. We hear the gunshot and... Because Mary had to direct them <laughs> there, she hears Chrissy go, I had to do it. You know, basically, it was self-defense. Right. Which, sure, no one was there to see it, so are we going to believe her story? But Mary has this really moment of acting here where she's like, she has to look stunned? That, oh my God, I can't believe you did this. Realization that, but that's exactly the decision I came to when I killed my husband, but it's my son, like she goes through like the, the gamut of emotions in like all about 1.3 seconds. And it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So basically Chrissy has taken business into her own hand. She didn't need a combine har- harvester. She just, <laughs> That's just, <Smith> just, just <laughs> yes, exactly. So then we see that Hotch has gone over to talk to JJ and he says, uh, are you okay? And JJ is just like in a state. She's like, you know what? If you stop caring, you're jaded. And then and then if you care too much, it's going to ruin you. And Hotch tells her, look, just know that you did everything that you could. Sometimes we get it right with a little luck, but most of the time we don't. And it's the job. It's never perfect. It's still better to care. And JJ is like, you really believe that? And Hotch says, well, I believe that it's never perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I thought was kind of weird. Like, 
to to care. It's still good to care, right? That's what she's looking for. <laughs> yeah, but he's not. He's not going to admit to that. He's going to like. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I don't know. Like uh, Hutch. Hotch has got stuff going on. <laughs> yes. In case we forgot, Hotch has issues going on, which we will see very shortly. But first, we see a scene of Rossi talking to Caulfield. And he's saying, Caulfield is saying, you know, you would think I would feel better after this. But Rossi tells him, look, these last killings weren't your fault. And the earlier case, you couldn't have solved it. Your killer was dead. And Caulfield says, well, not to me for 27 years. <laughs> 27 years I've been thinking about this. Again, we had to get... 27, AJ. And uh, (laughs) then he looks over at Rossi and says, how long has it been for you? And Rossi says, 21. And Caulfield says, well, don't let it get to 22. So I guess that means we're going to see Rossi solve this case sometime this season, maybe. Because we don't want it to get to 22. Maybe next well, why season. Why would you think that? <laughs> I don't know. Just a thought. We see the team leaving in their SUVs, and JJ gets to do the end quote here. She says, Wordsworth wrote, A simple child that lightly draws its breath and feels its life in every limb, what should it know of death? Um, nothing? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly, Wordsworth. <laughs> what are your words, 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 words? <laughs> so finally, we cut back to the BAU office. We see Morgan. He's asking everybody if they want to go out for drinks. <laughs> yes. Everybody seems down for it, even Rossi, which is interesting to see. He's not like Gideon. If they're talking about drinks, Rossi is going to be like going with the crew. Uh, interesting. Well, you say everybody's into it. Reed's like, no, 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 I couldn't possibly. possibly. Leia, you coming out with us. Yes. Morgan has made that decision for Reed. Uh, And JJ's like, I got paperwork to do maybe next time. And I think everyone, what's, what I like about this is that no one then says, no, JJ, you got to come with us. It's like, you know what? JJ's had a really bad day. Let her do what she needs to do. I think the fact that they all recognize that is pretty cool. Yep. Rossi asks Hotch if he wants to come along, and Hotch is like, sure. So they start walking out. But then all of a sudden, uh, a man comes up into the office. Uh, He's got an envelope for Hotch after he determines that it's Agent Hotchner. They're like looking at him. What's going on? Hotch signs for the, the envelope. He opens it up. There's papers in there. Haley's filing for a divorce. I've been served. And then he leaves without saying that he's not going to go out for drinks with them. <laughs> you know, I think these are BAU profilers. I think they figured that out. <laughs> I mean, they really, the profile uh, profiling on this should have been just like, hey, that's a process server. He just got served. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Clearly. Like, yeah, um, we knew that. And I, and I like, again, I, I, I like that they don't drop any of the storylines in their personal lives here. You know, it's like last week, he got a phone call. We didn't know what it was, but he got a phone call and was like, looked upset, but they, they never really mentioned anything about it. Well, now we know <laughs> he knew this was coming. He's not surprised. Yeah. That is our episode for the week. AJ. What'd you think? Good, bad, indifferent. I thought it was a good episode. Uh, it wasn't like up there among my best episodes ever, but it, 
I I didn't have a lot of nitpicks compared to other weeks, and I thought the acting was good, and uh, yeah, I thought it was a solid, if not not spectacular, solid not spectacular episode. Exactly. They can't all be like super exciting, and you know they can't all have like amazing guest stars or everything. But uh, you know, yeah, occasionally you get one that is forgettable, but not awful. Right. So, what about our barometer, AJ? Each week after the show, after the episode, we take a look and see if our team has won the show for that particular week. What do you think this week? I, I mean, I think they summed it up themselves pretty well here. I mean, it's a win. Take the win. Sometimes it's a function of luck. <laughs> but, right. But, but it's a win. Like, yeah, they, they, look, there were, there were two uh, women kidnapped you know, they were called in on one and one was kidnapped while they were there and they rescued both of them. So that's a win. Sounds good. I like it. The other thing we like to do, AJ, after the end of uh, our recap is a little quiz inspired by the episode we just watched. So let's do that for now. What's up? Yes, indeed. Question one. Uh, and, 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 you know, not not to make it like easy for you because this is hardly easy but all three uh, questions will be multiple choice for you this week all right i like that yes all right so question one uh jennifer hetrick who played mary in this episode uh, remember mary maybe mm-hmm. fine murderer of her husband in the combine <laughs> isn't it uh all right she has a long history of appearing on television as the wife slash girlfriend slash romantic interest of regular characters. Her okay. her IMDb page is full of these short stints of playing uh, opposite regular leads of TV shows. So I'm going to give you the names of four characters from television shows and just tell me which one was not romantically linked at one time on the show to a character played by Jennifer Hetrick. Okay. Sounds good. Is it A... Arnie Becker from L.A. Law. Is it B, Jean-Luc Picard from Star Trek, The Next Generation? Is it C, Tony Almeida, 24? Or is it D, Walter Skinner, The X-Files? AJ, out of that list, I am going to say uh, she was not a character that was romantically involved with Tony Almeida on 24, choice C. Choice C. Do you remember her from any of these roles? I vaguely remember her on L.A. Law. When you said L.A. Law, I could picture her with Corbin Burnson. Now, if that's the wrong answer, then my mind has is playing tricks on me like the Ghetto Boys, and I, <laughs> I'm getting it wrong. But I feel like I remember that. The other ones, I don't remember. Excellent, excellent. Well, good news for you. You are correct, sir. Yes, in addition to uh, at one time marrying Arnie Becker, a very short-lived marriage, whatever that's a marriage, uh, she was also uh, Walter Skinner's uh, wife who files for divorce (laughs) in one episode and never seen again. Uh, And she was a multiple episode uh, guest star uh, with Jean-Luc Picard, uh, he went on shore leave and she was an archaeologist and they go on a romantic adventure together. Uh, and she would eventually appear a couple other times, including once on Deep Space Nine. Anyway, 
Jennifer Ettrick, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, one so for one. All right, cool. One for one. Good job. All right, let's see if we can keep the good times rolling here. Now, I'm sure if you didn't recognize her or maybe recognized her, you certainly 100% will recognize Rodney Eastman, uh, who played Stephen Foley in this episode, the non unsub son of a rapist. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he actually uh, got his start with multiple roles in the 1980s horror scene, uh, which one of the following four films did he not appear in? Is it A, Beverly Hills Body Snatchers? B, Chopping Mall? C, Nightmare on Elm Street, two of the sequels? Or D, Sorority Babes in the Slime Ball Bolo Rama. I don't think he was in Beverly Hills Body Snatchers, AJ. Because you remember the film fondly or you don't think the film exists? (laughs) (laughs) That's the one, like all of the other ones sound vaguely familiar. And I was actually, before you said it, going to say, wasn't he in Nightmare on Elm Street? So you, the fact that you said it made me think that even if I'm slightly off, that memory is correct. So, yeah. And I've heard of Chopping Mall or something similar. I feel like I've heard of that. So, yeah, because I, I feel like I haven't heard that one. Okay, fair enough. And, uh, yeah, he was... I believe he survived one of the Nightmare, uh, I believe Nightmare 3, and then died early in 4. They did that a lot of times. They'd carry one character over just to kill them. Right. Uh, so yes, definitely did that. Uh, but he did not appear in the highly underrated Sorority Babes in the Slime Bowl Volorama. <laughs> there ain't uh, no fair sneaking peeking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. Always an awful film. It's an awful film. <laughs> I couldn't tell from the title, but <laughs> uh, you right. know, the trauma style film. Yeah, you know, the surf Nazis must die. Sorority guys like Bob There's a lot of them out there back then. Uh, all right, well, fifty percent. Let's see if you can get back on the winning side of the ledger with my favorite question of the week. Are sneaking and peeking. Uh, next week's episode. What will the plot of Criminal Minds, uh, Season 3, Episode 12, entitled Third Life, Third Life, be? Third Life. Is it A, a death row inmate has been granted a new trial, much to the chagrin of Rossi, who was personally responsible for his conviction in the first place? Is it B? Do you believe in reincarnation? Well, our unsub does, and he's trying to right the wrongs of a past only he seems to remember by killing a whole lot of people. Is it C? Somebody is taking a hot new computer game a little too seriously by taking his murderous online character into the real world. Or is it D? Something's not quite right with the parents of two abducted girls, 
and the BAU tries to figure out what they might be hiding. So AJ, in my mind, after you read the title, I said to myself, well, if it's about this, then it's going to involve a computer game because immediately, and this could be a perfectly placed trap for me, but immediately you mentioned Third Life, and I thought about the game Second Life, which is sort of a, a sim world type of situation game. Sounds perfectly like your choice, C, which I don't remember word for word, but that sounds <laughs> like what it was. So I am going to go with choice C. Choice C, yeah. Also, uh, Half Life, also a, a computer sure. game series. Yes. Uh, and the game of life, which you married. <laughs> uh, no, ah, no, you have a trap. My trap. Yes, <laughs> it's a trap. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, and again, while some of my choices, and I will never say which ones, but some of my choices do actually outline episodes we may see years from now. <laughs> this week coming up. Something's not quite right with the parents of two abducted girls. Yes, more abducted girls. Uh, the BAU will figure out, if they can, what's up with these parents. <laughs> well, that is just dandy. I am <laughs> never getting enough abducted girls on Criminal Minds. So I am looking forward to it. Well... Hey, folks, guess what? That is the show for this week. Thank you, AJ. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We certainly hope you had a great time. Please be sure to subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to spread the word and let your friends know about us. You can also write to us at feloniouspundits at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore pundits. For AJ Mass, this is Kintad Svensgaard saying goodbye and keep profiling. Wheels up! I met a gin-soaked barroom queen in Memphis. She tried to take me upstairs for a ride. She had to heave me right across the shoulder because I just can't seem to drink you off my mind. Mick Jagger. <laughs>